Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. POTUS time to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It is Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. I always like to begin one of these conversations uh, with a headline. Uh, this headline was just sent to me uh, by Joanna Klonsky. Uh, who else would send me? It's a Me Too story. So, of course, Joanna I would send this to me. Also got it for Kenny Davis. I, I've gotten it from three different people. There's a third person. Everybody's sending me the same article. Literally within the last, I'm telling my distinguished guesses, within the last half hour, I've gotten the same article from three different people because everybody knows me by now. I'm very predictable. Uh, this falls under the category of Democrats being just un- utterly clueless, their own worst enemies, uh, completely inconsistent, some might say hypocritical, and uh, what? Their own worst enemies. All right, here's the headlines. Uh, National Public Radio, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Tom Dreisbach. Okay, I apologize, uh, Mr. Dreisbach, if I butchered your name. I got the Tom part right, uh, and he is a reporter for NPR. Uh, A corruption trial revealed a Me Too ethics entanglement for a top Biden advisor, a top advisor to President Joe Biden, whose prominent communications firm helped launch a high profile effort to assist victims of sexual harassment, rape and assault, was also a paid advisor to a powerful Illinois politician while he's being sued by one of those victims. That convoluted lead. It's just like, I don't know, man. I think we're going to have a do. I, I think we must. I'm going to have an assemblage of all the journalism schools in the country. And we're going to figure out a better way to write news leads. We're going to do this, ladies and gentlemen. It's so convoluted. I read that thing, distinguished guest. I'm like, no one knows what this means. Okay. There's, they, they're like trying to tell you this is important, but they don't want to give you too much information because they don't want to overwhelm you. <laughs> Crunch it all in. Anyway, it involves a woman named Anita Dunn, who's a top aide to Joe Biden, who is a a co-founder of a communication firm that at one point or another represented Michael Joseph Madigan, House Speaker Madigan. Y'all know him, don't you, listeners? Mad Dog Madigan only talked about him for like four years 
straight. He's kind of off the radar these days as he prepares for his federal corruption charge. But if you recall, uh, there were a time when he was up to his eyeballs and Me Too allegations. Uh, Elena Hampton was um, was the main uh, person making some of the allegations, a former Madigan aide. Uh, and to help assist in uh, dealing with the public um, outcry over uh, Elena Hampton's allegations, they brought in Dunn's firm and paid them more than $200,000. Let's pause and just think about that. My distinguished guests and I, just distinguished guests, think about this. They got $200,000 for part-time work. You and I have been in this racket. <laughs> If we add the, the two careers together, we've been in this racket. Hold on, distinguished guest. Close to 70 years. Neither one of us has ever made anything resembling $200,000. It says so much about just everything in the universe. Uh, the people who are responsible for ferreting out uh, the corruption and the hypocrisies and the inconsistencies get pennies the people who are in charge of confusing you <laughs> gaslighting you feeding you false narratives trying to distract you all those things that pr flax do they get the big money oh god i can go on and on but i won't i got plenty of other things to talk about with my distinguished guests who i'll now ask to introduce distinguished guests introduce yourself I am distinguished guest Mick Dunkey. I'm an editor and reporter for Block Club Chicago. And Ben, we've probably made $200,000 total over our careers at some <laughs> point in time. Yes, that is true. Total. Total. Absolutely. Total. No, no lump sum payment for $200,000 no. that I can remember. Ben, we're going to give you $200,000 for this TIFF article. Uh, TIFF is very important. Hey, Mick, here's $200,000 to write an article about corrupt uh, criminal justice in the city of Chicago. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. Uh, in, you never in got another a world, in another land. In another world. You'll get plenty of rich. You'll get plenty, you'll get plenty rich or well off defending <laughs> these policies, but, uh, you know, revealing them? Uh-uh. All right, I'm going to stop crying about how broke I am uh, and how unfair everything is. Um, all right, Mick, let's uh, not go down the Michael Joseph Madigan uh, rabbit hole, which I know you could because you've written about him, too. You've written about his 13th War Organization. Uh, instead, uh, let's continue. You took my advice uh, and my advice uh, being the advice I give all journalists. You can't do a story once. You can't do a story twice. You can't do a story three times. You got to do a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever times it takes to drive it home into the public's mind. Uh, and you are uh, doing an excellent job, an outstanding job uh, on this front, dealing with how the CHA is, uh, the Chicago Housing Authority is handling uh, its promise. <laughs> It's promised to residents who were evicted when they tore down the uh, high-rise projects to bring them back. Not doing very well. What's the latest, Mick, on that front? Well, the f the latest, Ben, uh, goes back to a theme that you mentioned a moment ago about um, people defending policies that don't often make sense or go against the public interest on some level, making a lot of money. So in this case, uh, we have... Uh, the Chicago Housing Authority 
hiring outside counsel, lawyers from Winston and Strawn, anybody around town uh, who has ever followed the legal or political world knows that name is familiar. A lot of power players connected to that law firm. Uh, so the CHA has hired Winston and Strawn to defend itself um, against a lawsuit that's trying to stop this land handoff over on the near west side of Chicago. And you're right. Uh, we've talked about this before in your show. I've been writing about it, for, uh, this particular deal for more than a year, about like more than a year and a half at this point in time. But uh, it's basically an agreement that uh, former Mayor Lori Lightfoot engineered where uh, the Chicago Housing Authority would lease, essentially sell off because it's a lease for 40 to 60 years at least. Uh, they would turn over land to the Chicago Fire soccer team so they can build a new practice facility. And um, even if you're a, a fan of the fire, you want the fire to stay and keep its operations in the city, great. But this land was uh, uh, devoted for public housing. It was reserved for housing um, since there used to be homes there before. Uh, more than 20 years ago. So there are several questions here. One is, why would a sports team owned by a billionaire need to buy this particular piece of land that's owned by the public, set aside for housing, uh, specifically housing people who can't necessarily afford to buy or rent housing themselves? Why this piece of land? And the second question at this point in history, Ben, is we have a new mayor, a new administration. And uh, while he was campaigning, Brandon Johnson promised to end deals like this. So why is this deal still going forward? Why is the Chicago Housing Authority paying taxpayer money to fight this lawsuit? And the answers? <laughs> I'm waiting for the answers. I don't know. I mean, why? Why? That's what everyone wonders. Why did uh, Joe Mansueto, the uh, billionaire businessman who owns Chicago Fire, why did he get his heart set in this particular site? Um, they were looking for a big chunk of property, and this was open. The CHA had not developed it for 20 years, despite promising to do so. So I think for whatever reason, their calculation was this was a great piece of land. It was the best one they came across. And so they worked with uh, former Mayor Lightfoot to hatch this deal to turn the property over to the Chicago Fire. But I think the more pertinent question right now, again, is uh, Mayor Johnson, where are you in this? You know, uh, the mayor promised to stop these kinds of deals, hasn't spoken about the Chicago Housing Authority or public housing since taking office in May. And, um, you know, last week I sat in a federal courtroom and watched uh, the lawyers go back and forth talking about this deal and a lawsuit challenging it and uh, was aware of the fact that taxpayer money is being spent to keep this deal alive and to keep it going forward. All right. So let me uh, hazard an answer uh, that's based purely on speculation and conjecture, as I am not privy to the private conversations of any of the people uh, in this uh, matter. 
uh, the people in the mayor's office, the people in the law office, the people at Winston and Strawn, uh, Joe Mansueto, Lori Lightfoot. You could just, the list could go on and on of people. That <laughs> I, I, I can't believe you haven't <laughs> been cut in on this conversation. Come on. Yeah, they don't call me up uh, on a speaker. All right, Ben, what's your thoughts? Uh, but I have been watching uh, public planning uh, in the city of Chicago mix since 1981, and there's some consistent things here. Number one, move poor people out of this area in this particular area that mick is talking about is the near uh west side of chicago around little italy uh and uh it is uh ripe for development it's already developed considerably mick just in the time you've been in chicago it's changed significantly forget since i got to town in the 80s since you got to town in the 90s it's changed significantly uh and uh if you tear down uh low-income housing and you put that land to other use, guess what, Mick? You fuel gentrification. You've moved poor people out of an area that is then free to open up uh, to full market value. Uh, and that has been the economic plan of the city of Chicago since at least 1990. That's the economic plan that the city of Chicago, that Lori Lightfoot inherited and that Brandon Johnson has inherited. Uh, and so from the billionaire standpoint, Mansueto, this is a a well-located uh, slice of land. Uh, it's uh, relatively easy to get to, and um, he's probably getting it for... I I do recall one of your stories. He got a pretty good deal uh, on the land, so it's a no-brainer from his perspective, and it's a no-brainer from the city's perspective in continuing the policies that have been... that go back to uh, Baby Daily in the, in the 90s. That's my theory uh, as to where we got to the point now where Brandon Johnson's mayor. We'll get into Brandon Johnson a little bit. Do you disagree or agree with my theory? Well, certainly uh, the historical record would support your theory. That is what's happened. Whatever the intentions were, I wasn't in on the meetings either, Ben. I, I know you're surprised that I wasn't cut in <laughs> as well. But uh, yeah, that's been the policy. I mean, the. Um, plan for transformation in the 1999-2000 that tore down you know thousands of units tens of thousands of units of public housing with promises from the CHA that they were going to be replaced uh, they were going to rebuild those sites with mixed income housing and uh, the site we're talking about on the near west side right next to UIC right next to little italy as you mentioned right next to the medical district prime site. The CHA had said they were going to build new housing there too, and they failed to do so for uh, more than 20 years. And now they're stepping, they're coming forward and saying, well, the land's vacant. We need to do something with it. Well, it's vacant because you failed to do what you said you're going to do. But that's now their their argument for putting the site there. So you're right. Everything uh, that you argued there is is supported by evidence. Yeah. And so that we get to, uh, so that I believe that's what was driving it up until uh, Brandon Johnson. Now, Mayor Brandon Johnson inherits this. And uh, so then the question becomes, why is Mayor Brandon Johnson allowing uh, the CHA, which he is, you know, he's in charge of the CHA effectively. He's, he oversees, he, he appoints the people who run that entity. Uh, why is he allowing this to go on? I'll give you two choices, Mick, uh, and then hear your thoughts on which choice you select. Number one, uh, he is uh, not completely taking charge of city government yet. He's still learning, like, where the bathroom is, so to speak. Uh, that's a metaphor. And uh, he hasn't got around to dealing with the CHA. 
Uh, and so it's just sort of operating on its own. That's one theory. The other theory is he's thinking, hmm, this is a fight I will probably lose if I engage it. Uh, I don't want to upset uh, Joe Mansueto. I don't want to uh, upset uh, powerful uh, commercial interest. I don't want cranes hammering the editorial. So Chicago Tribune even more rabid than it usually is. Uh, so I'm just going to just sort of pretend this isn't happening while it's happening because there's probably nothing I could do about it anyway. Uh, and uh, damn that, make dumpy dumpy for writing about it uh, all this time. So which one of those theories uh, do you subscribe to? I subscribe to see both of them, all of the above. <laughs> Uh, I think that it, you know, the CHA has not been a priority. Um, and I don't just think this, this is also based on actual conversations with sources and, you know, reporting, but I think the CHA and, uh, you know, longer term housing has not been a priority while they're struggling to deal with the migrant and asylum seeker crisis, as well as homelessness. So I think CHA is back burner for sure. Um, and I asked him about this. I had an interview with uh, Mayor Johnson a few weeks ago and asked him about CHA and other so-called sister agencies of the city government. And uh, he indicated they were still evaluating them all. So um, back burner, still learning where the bathroom is, as you said. And the second thing is, you're right, Ben. We saw the same playbook happen under uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel's administration in the early days when there was a pending lawsuit challenging the parking meter deal. Um, I don't have to remind your listeners what the parking meter deal is or the consequences. But you remember, uh, Rahm campaigned saying he wanted to get rid of the parking meter deal. And then he got into office and he did the same thing. He sent city lawyers, uh, expended city resources to defend that deal, effectively to keep the deal in place. And uh, you and I, after watching all that, talking to people, you know, we realized he just decided I can't undo this thing. I can blame it on my predecessor. So politically, it's an easy thing to say, sorry, I wish I could do something, but I just can't. And to move on to the next crisis, the next problem. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, uh, Mick, I'll ask you a question that uh, I could answer myself, but I want to hear your answer. Why should anyone care about this story? I think they should care on several levels. The first level is that we are, as I just alluded to, and everyone who's in the city knows, we're in the middle of a housing crisis, and it takes many forms. The emergency housing crisis, where we literally have people sleeping on the floors of police stations, where Mayor Johnson has uh, floated a plan to build tent cities, essentially refugee camps within the city of Chicago. We have a number of our public parks at the same time that um, have already become encampments for unhoused people who, uh, for various reasons, whether they have uh, needs of social services that aren't being met or they can't afford to rent apartments in the open market, are, are living in tents in Humboldt Park, in my neighborhood in Rogers Park. There are people who have been camping out in parks off and on. And all over the city, this is happening. So we have an emergency housing crisis. We also have um, an issue with people having to leave the city or, you know, couch surf, stay with relatives because they can't afford rent because we have a shortage of affordable housing here. And um, some people have said experts smarter about this sort of thing than, than me. 
um, have said that the affordable housing shortage is at least 100,000 units of housing. That's a lot of people that are needed. Uh, there, I, I know this, Ben, there are 50,000 people on the Chicago Housing Authority's wait list. So there is a need for housing. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, uh, this deal with the Chicago fire that former Mayor Lightfoot engineered is an example of a backroom, no bid city hall deal. Even if you're not moved by the issue of housing specifically, you should be concerned that a public asset, a public piece of public property was given over to uh, a connected entity, a, a billionaire financial supporter of the mayor's campaign um, without much transparency at all. There were no bids solicited. There was no process to determine if this was the best alternative for that piece of property. This is the best way to develop it. Even if you don't want to put housing there, why don't you solicit other ideas to see what the best thing you could put there is uh, for taxpayers. And then as you and I both know, the way that these deals are hatched to try to figure out what the future value of this land is, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years down the road, it's like a roll of the dice, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there just wasn't enough of a process in place that people could see to be assured that even if we're going to do this deal with the Chicago fire, that taxpayers got the best deal they possibly could. Now, and uh, I want to add that this deal, despite in the origins, you're right, uh, was very much back room and there's no discussion uh, there was no attention brought to it, but eventually it came before the city council. My memory serves me correctly, and there was a vote. Uh, and I can't remember was it a process to vote, approve a zoning change or to prove the actual transaction. I do remember that there was a debate. I remember reading your coverage of the debate. Uh, in your opinion, upon reflection, was that debate adequate enough to serve as what uh, the public's oversight of what went down? It was not adequate. Um, the when it came before the city council, it was technically a zoning change related to the deal. It wasn't actually before the the deal itself wasn't actually before the city council. That was the CHA board's job was to vet, you know, the terms of the actual deal to make sure the CHA was getting the best terms possible. And the CHA board totally punted. So that happened first. They approved the deal. They essentially gave a blank check to the CEO of the Chicago Housing Authority because the terms of the deal hadn't even been agreed upon yet. Nothing was in writing, but they authorized uh, Tracy Scott, the head of the CHA, to enter into the deal. So the CHA board signed away or voted away its right to actually scrutinize the terms of this deal. So when it went to the city council, their job was to do a yes or no on a zoning change needed. Now, the political reality, Ben, is that they could have stopped the whole deal by using the zoning. Like they could have, on their zoning vote, they could have used that to slow or stop the deal. But they didn't. They voted to go ahead with it, even though they had not seen the terms of the deal either. So this whole thing skated through. The plan commission also signed off on it before the city council. Every oversight body signed off on this deal without seeing actually not just the fine print, but even the general overview terms of what the deal was. So I do not call that adequate or transparent in any way. 
Mick, I can't recall how much money uh, did uh, the CHA get for this land. Man, you're testing my memory. It's um, it amounts to a little bit less than a million dollars a year for 40 years. Plus there's an additional lump sum payment that the fire agreed to make. Um, But when you add it all up, it's um, it's, it's roughly a million dollars a year for at least 40 years. Gotcha. So 40 million, if my math is correct, and let me remind you, as I often do make that I took algebra at Evanston high school. Uh, So $40 million uh, total. So the city council could have uh, said in so many words after the CHA threw away its fiduciary oversight role in this, the city council could have said in so many words, we're not giving you the zoning because we think we're uh, giving you this land for too cheap. So we're going to vote against the zoning and ask the CHA to go back to negotiate so we can get $60 million. They could have done that if they wanted to. Am I correct in that, Mick? They could have. But again, they never saw a copy of the agreement because technically the agreement wasn't even fully formed at that point in time. The CHA said they were still negotiating it. So they did in the city council zoning committee, they, um, they mentioned when someone asked, they mentioned verbally like the broad terms of the deal in the way that I just did to you, but they didn't pass around any paper, any document showing what consisted, what this agreement actually consisted of. So both the zoning committee and then the full city council ultimately said yes to the whole thing without seeing the terms of the deal. See, so there's, uh, this reminds me of so many uh, stories I've written over the years uh, about transparency with the TIF program. And I remember having a conversation uh, with a uh, gentleman who is very much uh, from mainstream Chicago. I'm blanking on the man's name. I could see his face. And he was trying to make sure that I wasn't the lunatic that he kind of thought I might be based on the fact that I was so consistently and passionately writing about this story. Uh, and so he tried to put it in words that he could relate to, Mick. Was, this is a guy who very much is connected at the, the, the mainstream of Chicago publishing. And he said to me, he goes, you're just, you're not against the whole TIFF program yourself. You just want a little more, like a tr- clean up some of the transparency part. You go, that's what he said to me. And I said, well, no, there's a fundamental inequity that's at that's here that's really unfair that's that the transparency is covering that up and so it's the same thing you know if you're more transparent you reveal what's going on then you're coming suddenly face to face with an inequity and in this particular case going back to your story not the tiff story in your story i think if the city were being honest they would say we want to encourage the gentrification of this land. We want to move poor people out. We want this area to accelerate in property values. We want Chicago to be a richer city. We want poor people out of here. Mick, if they were honest, that's what they would say. I, Because that is the effect of the policies they're pursuing. So they don't want transparency, Mick, because if they were transparent, everyone could see what they were up to. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, this is a this is an example of city political corruption. That is what this is. And, you know, corruption does not just occur in the form of an of an envelope being passed under the table, right? It is that our oversight process, our oversight bodies cease to function the way they should. They 
are populated by people who go along to get along and don't ask the right questions and advance agendas that are unspoken, even if like you and I can see them, you know, bright as day. And so this is an example. That's why I keep writing about this. I think it's an important story, like I said at the beginning, just because of the issue of housing and the, the housing issue. That would be enough for me. I would still write about it. But the fact that it's tied in with this long pattern of corruption and anti-democratic or, or quasi-democratic uh, oversight processes being uh, you know, just totally ineffective at, at even asking the right questions about something. Um, to me, that just makes it like into an incredibly important story. Uh, all right. Well, shout out to Block Club, your current employer, for allowing you the freedom uh, to continue this. Uh, it that is uh, in this in, in journalistic environment, just a luxury. You know, it, it should be it shouldn't be a luxury, Mick, but in reality, it is a luxury. So. Uh, shout out Black Club for uh, letting you loose on this thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm into that. No one has said to me, you know, your uh, your story about the federal court hearing last week didn't get enough hits. We're we're done with this. Um, they they get it that you know it's a story that has highs and lows, and um, you know the latest update about things that a judge said and the you know intricacies of what that actually means, like. To quote one of my colleagues, you know, it wasn't exactly a barn burner, but we thought that it's important to document each step in this process and to stay on it. And so I agree with you. I um, really appreciate my colleagues and editors being on board with uh, with following the story. And and I'll just follow this up. You know, not a barn burner. I'm smiling when I heard that because uh, it, 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 with the part we left out, which now I'm going to go there. Uh, is <laughs> there's supposed to be a CHA eval? Excuse me, uh, a, a federal evaluation of the deal. They're supposed to be. The feds didn't do an evaluation. In other That's words, right. they're supposed to do a federal evaluation of how how this will impact uh, housing needs in the city of Chicago. That's what federal oversight is all about, ladies and gentlemen. That's why you have the federal government overseeing like voting rights cases in the South to make sure that communities and that have have a history of violating federal law don't continue to violate federal law. So it's supposed to be federal oversight in Chicago of how they handle their. Uh, public housing program. There was no federal oversight. And so like the judge said, all right, here's what we're going to do, basically, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, as long as the HUD, after the fact, agrees to have a report that investigates whether this is a violation of their, whatever, rules and regulations. So civil rights laws, federal civil rights <laughs> laws. Yeah. Yes. Then uh, as long as they do that, we'll allow it. <laughs> He, he didn't say he would allow it, but you're right. He signaled like, why can't you just do the review? I don't see why yeah. you can't do the review. Do the civil rights review, then come back to me, you know? Um, and uh, so you're right. And I think what's notable of this, Ben, I mean, let's just state the obvious here. This is happening under a Democratic administration in Washington too, right? So the, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development led by Democrats they failed to conduct a civil rights review. They helped grease the skids to move this deal forward. Yeah. Well, and um, so this is, I always tell people this, that I spent th at least 20 years of my life uh, fighting Democrats in Chicago 
30 years maybe before I started paying attention to what Republicans were up to on a regular basis, Mick. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's well, just, well, there's just, so much to do to uh, <laughs> keep track of what Democrats are doing around here, Ben. You, yeah. you can't be blamed. Yeah. yeah. I finally said, you know what? I got to look at the Republicans, uh, but you're absolutely correct. All right. Uh, let's move on. Uh, you mentioned Mayor Johnson, a conversation or an interview you had with him uh, over uh, this matter. And uh, that leads me to this. Uh, how do you think Mayor, I think the last time we were in the show, you're very critical of Mayor uh, Johnson and uh, how he's handling press operations. Uh, or maybe it was on another radio show that you said that, Mick. I don't know. I, or it was a private conversation, whatever. You were critical. Uh, and uh, since then, uh, he's given, had three rather lengthy public uh, appearances. One, first Tuesdays, yes, my show uh, with Maya, uh, that Mick once uh, co-hosted with me at the Promontory. And then uh, he did one at the Economics Club, I want to say, a bunch of uh, business types, muckety-mucks and nice suits. Uh, and uh, then he did another one. I forget where it was. It was like one, two, three in a row. I was like, oh, maybe he's... He listened to Mick and is now um, changing his tactics and strategies in terms of dealing with the press and through the press, dealing with the public. Your thoughts? I, I do think they've made more of an effort to um, make the mayor accessible, not just visible. He's been visible the whole time. I mean, he was at the Bears game. Listen, I follow him on Instagram. I don't follow very many people on Instagram, Ben, but I follow uh, Mayor Johnson on Instagram uh, and, and find it very interesting. So he's all over the place. He's very visible. He is out in, he's seen at events, he's shaking hands, he's meeting people. And I think that's really important thing for him to do. What you're alluding to though, is that um, earlier this summer, I said on a, on a different radio show, I was on WBEZ and they asked me what I thought of his, uh, his transparency, to use the, that overused term, but to you talk about his communication and transparency to that point. And I said that he got an F for his communication and openness on the uh, response to the migrant and asylum seekers specifically. And um, listen, I, I, I like, there's a couple people close to him in the mayor's press office. I, I respect, I like them personally. And I, subsequently had an exchange with one of them and uh, who was a little bit defensive saying, Hey, we inherited this crisis. And I said, listen, I didn't say that you got an F for handling the crisis. Um, I'm not sure what grade I would give right now. That's a whole separate conversation. But what I said was your communication about the crisis. So we did have an exchange. I don't know that they listened to me, Ben, they um, maybe shouldn't listen to me on a lot of things, let's be honest, but uh, they subsequently have made the mayor available for more press questions. They had a series of sort of speed dating type interviews with the mayor to mark his uh, first 100 days in office. Um, he's appeared at the events you mentioned, most importantly, First Tuesdays. Listen, as long as he was at First Tuesdays, we got to give him an A, right? I mean, come on. Uh, great amount of curve here. Let's go. Um, no, listen, I, I do think they're making more of an effort to uh, to communicate. Um, however, you know, they still are doing some of the old political tricks that we've seen from City Hall and other politicians through the years leaking certain things to certain sources, placing stories, that's probably never going to end. 
Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to come down on Mayor Johnson specifically too hard for that, except that, you know, he's promised us he's going to do things in all these different ways. And in a lot of ways, they're still playing some of these same, uh, kind of PR games. I guess that's just probably never going to end. Right. No, that'll never end. Selectively releasing uh, stories to uh, reporters, either just to, I don't know, win them over, shut them up, uh, take care of them. Who knows what motivates them? Uh, it, it's, it's happened forever. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start sobbing again. Like, I don't like, I actually, when people like nobody's I'm trying to think, have I ever been selectively, uh, I had a story leaked to me. I can't think of it. I know a couple of times reporters will say to me, Hey man, you'd be the first. Da, 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 da. I mean, uh, sources will say, and I go, you know, I don't want to be the first. Give it, give it to Mick. You know what I mean? I'm like, give it to someone. <laughs> I don't want to be the first it. either. Hot potato, man. Yeah, I don't want to feel obligated, honestly. Yeah, and, exactly. and you and I don't, we're uh, in fairness, we're not beat reporters who are trying to get scoops and um, trying to advance the narrative through daily or breaking news stories. That's just not what we have done. So we're not really in that um, that marketplace for a lot of those uh, those leaks either. I mean, let's be fair, right? Yeah. To be yeah, fair, no, as you would say. To be fair, uh, you know, the little Lutton quote. But I I mean, I think about this with uh, sports a lot, too. Uh, so uh, if not, this op- any opportunity to get to talk about basketball, Mick, I eagerly jump on it. So in basketball, there's two reporters that compete for scoops from uh, the um, – the GMs, general managers in basketball and the NBA. And one of them is Wojo, the guy who writes for ESPN. And the other guy's name, I'm blanking, uh, I forget his actual name. Uh, I'm blanking on it right now, Mick, but let's just say his name was Billy Bob. It's really uh, Chams. Uh, uh, yes, yes, yeah. thank you. And, and I'm, so, I may be saying his name wrong, so apologies if I am. Yeah, so apologies. So the point is, is that they get as soon as they get the scoop from whatever their sources, they're fed it, they drop it on uh, their Instagram now, now pretty much everybody's going to Instagram, Mick. The days of X are kind of dwindling to a certain degree. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, it's such an embarrassing forum, X. But so they go to Instagram and they put it out there. And I love this at, at free agent time. You know what I mean? The signings, like, boom. boom oh, it's boom. amazing. It's amazing. It's thrilling. <laughs> and they're just being. It's thrilling. They're just being fed. It's like you go to a barn and here's the cow. All right, it's time to eat. You're going to feed the cow. You know what I mean? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it's like, and every people, like the reader, the listeners, the readers, oh, great job, Woj. Another Woj bomb. I go, he was fed this. (laughs) I don't know, Mick. You know what I mean? There's something wrong with journalism. I don't, you know what I'm saying? I, it's it's part of the way it works. I mean, let's just I just think we need to be again, we need to be open about it. We need to be transparent. This is the way that it works. So just yeah. let everybody know. This is the way it works. All right, enough on that. Uh so you're going to uh say, just in fairness uh to Mayor uh, Johnson, your grade is up, is higher than it was than it was on that when you were on that show on Be Easy, correct? Yeah, I do I want to acknowledge that I think they've made an effort. Um and uh, I think they are making the mayor available more often in more different kinds of uh, forums, you know, to take questions, unscripted kind of exchanges. I think that's really important. All right. Well, let's move on with another specific uh, example 
of what's uh, how the mayor reacts to a crisis in the city. Excellent reporting. I want to give a shout out to Quinn Myers uh, and Mina Bloom, also uh, from Black Club Mix uh, colleagues, about the, the rising rate of robberies uh, on the north side of Chicago in, in and around Logan Square, Wicker Park, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and uh, it's a, a long, compelling story that they put together, Mick, uh, supported by statistics and interviews uh, with people who've been robbed, uh, who've been held up. And um, I'm not sure the city knows what to do, Mick. You know, they certainly don't seem prepared to deal with it uh, right now. And um, I'm just... We asked Mayor Johnson about this when we had first Tuesdays about the robberies, and he said he was going to hire more detectives. Uh, but it doesn't, it just, just seems like the city, the police department, they're just, they, they're incapable of confronting this in a meaningful way that would reassure people uh, that robberies will fall. That's my takeaway from the, the uh, Black Club uh, story. What's your thoughts? I, I agree with you. Um, and, you know, the same day the Block Club story came out, uh, Quinn and Mina's story, which I agree was very good, very well reported. They um, spoke to a lot of people who were impacted, who were victimized by robberies and, and captured their voices. And I thought that was, uh, it made it more than just a statistics a story. It, it really sort of shared the the human part of this, you know, what the consequences were for all of this. Um, but at the same day, their story came out. WBEZ had a story out looking at robbery in, you know, robbery data, robbery trends for the whole city. And they found, um, you know, of course, that these areas that Queen Amina highlighted on the northwest side are way up, but they also found that they're up in other places and that robberies citywide are at a six-year high uh, right now. Um, and I came away with the same impression you did. I, I felt like there's a lot of different explanations thrown out there for why, but there wasn't a whole lot of uh, clear, weren't a whole lot of clear answers about what the police department, what the rest of the city is going to do. I mean, obviously, Mayor Johnson campaigned and was elected largely on the strength of his uh, his promises to look at the long-term sources of crime, the long-term you know reasons, causes, and address those. Inequality, disinvestment, mental health issues. And I think people are still in favor of that. That's why he got elected. But I also think, you know, going back to our previous uh, conversation, I mean, this is also a communication issue. Um, I do think that it would be helpful for the police department leadership, uh, which is in transition, by the way, and mm -hmm. for the mayor himself and his team to come forward and uh, tell people what their plan is. Uh, they could even acknowledge the places where they're struggling. Um, but I think communicating with people, letting them know that they're aware of it, that they're on it, that they're working towards solutions, I think would be very helpful. And I just don't think we've heard, you know, any, many clear answers or, or clear plans from them to this point. Now, I have to say, in fairness, uh, since we're going to say in fairness a lot, uh, this has been a situation in the city of Chicago that's existed as long as I can remember. McDumpke and I have been talking about this forever. And that is, it just seems that no matter who the mayor is, no matter who the police chief is, no matter which administration is, they don't really have. <laughs> they, they just... 
there's I don't sense that they have a strategy to deal with crime in Chicago and the crime in Chicago goes up and it goes down. And I never can pinpoint it to anything that the police department is uh, is doing. You know, and uh, I've had Peter Cunningham come on this show many times, Mick. We take the deep dive on this, and sometimes he defends police strategies that uh, have existed from time to time. But then he, even he, P- PC, Peter Cunningham, must concede that the, the it'll rise in, the, in another year. Well, the strat. so what do you, the strategy didn't work, you know, and it all of a sudden stopped working, or did they change it, or we never really know. And so that leads me to this, uh, Mick. I have no doubt in my mind that if Mayor Lori Lightfoot were the mayor or if Mayor Rahm Emanuel was the mayor or if Mayor Richard M. Daley were the mayor, there would also be at this time an increase in robberies. It's hooked to a lot of things that have gone on and have nothing to do with who the mayor is. Uh, that said, in your humble opinion, how would Mayor Rahm or Mayor Lightfoot or Mayor Daley uh, uh, handle the same uh, hike in robberies from a, a PR or communication standpoint uh, if they were the mayor at the time? Well, first of all, I agree with you about um, this is not dependent on who's in the mayor's office. I, I don't think people make a decision to rob someone at gunpoint based on who's sitting on the fifth floor of City Hall. Um, I do think that earlier some of the the mayors you mentioned, especially Daly and Rahm, I think were were sensitive to uh, the politics of crime going up, and I think they would have responded a little bit more quickly and 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 clearly. And I think there's some value in that. A lot of times, you realize it's hot air. They don't have any answers either. I mean, you and I. Um, have written about that. I wrote about it a lot when I was working with you at the reader, um, the days of Rom and Gary McCarthy. I mean, I used to go to Gary McCarthy's press conferences and, you know, poke holes in some of the stuff he was saying. There's a while, remember when Gary McCarthy had uh, police officers just standing on certain corners. That's what they did all day. They had sentries on certain corners, like sitting there keeping watch. And then of course, you know, there might be something down the block or two blocks away, but they had a police officer standing on that corner. And that was their message that they're on it. And we're keeping track of this. This has been a trouble corner. We're going to, we're going to stop crime on this corner, which of course doesn't stop crime. So I totally understand that doing something that's a quick fix, a bandaid, just a PR thing um, that can, that can just end up being empty and that can like, disillusion people in a different sort of way. Um, so I'm not arguing for that, but I do think that the mayor should be communicating a little more clearly about, about the crime issue in particular, especially since it was, you know, I think one of the, if not the leading issues in, uh, in the campaign. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was, I think the leading issue, uh, in the campaign, uh, all right. Uh, we'll close with an update on ROM Watch. Uh, this is a p- particular enjoyable uh, little sidelight for uh, making myself uh, the former mayor of the city of Chicago. He did not run in 2019. Uh, he embarked on a career as a diplomat. He was uh, he's the ambassador uh, to uh, Japan, the U.S. ambassador to Japan. Uh, and um, so you would figure that living in Japan, he would rarely come to the city of Chicago. But good God, 
I don't think a month passes, Mick, without uh, Mayor Rahm venturing back to Chicago, either virtually uh, through an interview, a phone conversation, uh, or what have you, or literally coming back to town for one reason or another. And uh, You were one of about five people that have sent me uh, a, an image of Mayor Rahm going to be the featured speaker at some luncheon that Cranes uh, is uh, throwing. And I just had a laugh out loud. Man, what has that guy got up his sleeve other than wanting to remind everyone that he has not left? He's still around, even if he's not in town. Yeah, that's the big question, right? What is his objective? Because, um, listen, if it was just this Cranes event that he suddenly, uh, you know, his picture, picture suddenly appeared connected with, and that was the only way he'd made the news. Um, that would be one thing, but you and I have been talking almost the whole summer. He just keeps showing up. There was the one, <laughs> there was like a one Sunday paper where he was in like Sneed's column in the Sun Times, and a couple pages later, he was quoted about something, some state issue in in Illinois, and it was like, why is he quoted in this story? And um, and then you, of course, I don't have to remind your listeners that. Uh, you were rather perturbed, I might say, to uh, see on social media pictures of Mayor Emanuel meeting with current Mayor Johnson and uh, that picture circulating and uh, a lovey-dovey caption along with it. Um, so the guy has been, for a guy who's like the ambassador of a country <laughs> half a world away, he has been more present in Chicago and, and Illinois politics this summer than a lot of office holders who are here right now. I mean, it's really amazing. Yeah. I, I, I stand by, but again, only speculation. I talk, if this is, if it's possible, I talk less to Rahm Emanuel than I do to Joe Mansueto, who owns uh, the Chicago Fire. I don't know if that's possible because I never talked to Joe Mansueto, so I don't know if there's anything lower than zero, uh, Mick. Uh, I did <laughs> I did graduate from Evanston High School and took that algebra class, but I don't know if anything. So maybe it's a tie. Uh, so I have no idea what he's up to, but uh, right now uh, I stand by my theory. My reigning theory is that he got word that Richard Durbin uh, is not going to run for re-election in 2016, and so he's getting ready to run for the Senate. That's my theory, and I'm sticking with it. What's your theory? I think that's very possible. I um, I don't have a better guess than that, but I do know from following Rom for a long time that this isn't just coincidental. This is not uh, just some sort of whim. Um, the guy, like you said, he is keeping his face and name out there for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm here. I exist. <laughs> I got to go to this cranes luncheon, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a fly in from Japan. Uh, all right, Mick, we'll close with this. Um, uh, my beloved Chicago Bears were absolutely dreadful on Sunday. I was texting you while I was watching it. Uh, and uh, it, it was from so many perspectives. I'm going to take a deep dive uh, with uh, a couple Bear fans tomorrow on this. But from so many perspectives, it was an absolute disaster. Uh, and uh, so do you. You're, you're a football fan, even though you're kind of in uh, denial about it. 
do you see any hope for the Chicago Bears to be a competitive football team this year, or do you think they're embarking on a season much like last year where they went three wins and 14 losses? Well, it was only week one, so I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna consign them to uh, three and fourteen or worse just yet. Uh, though I know a lot of Bear Nation is already really worried about that, and um, I, it's early, Ben. I mean, as you get older, you realize uh, that uh, a you've spent a lot of your life watching sports. At least that's the case for you and I. Um, and many of your other listeners, like probably way too much time. I don't even want to know the number of hours I've spent watching sports. But my point is that weird things can happen. Um, I just a minute ago, I'll admit while you were talking, I looked at my phone and saw that the Cubs just lost to the Rockies again, uh, losing games to a team that's like 40 games under 500 when they are trying to make the postseason. But I bring that up because I'm – I'm a pretty big Cubs fan, as you know, and uh, I never thought they were going to go anywhere this season. At one point in time, I think they were like 10 games under 500, and now yes. they're about 10 games over 500. So they've had a great turnaround. There are more games in baseball. You have a, a bigger, uh, uh, more opportunities to get things together, um, but it's too soon to tell for the bears. Don't give up yet, man. I know you love the bears more than you let on. This guy loves the bears, everybody <laughs> and follows the bears. He reads all the articles, certainly the columns, every single one about them. And uh, Ben don't lose hope yet. There's still time. It's sad, but true. Ladies and gentlemen, I just can't get the bears out of my system. Oh God, I need help. Uh, at least the Bulls, it's like an entertaining thing to go to the Bulls games. It's fun. You talk with your friends. It's You're warm. You know what I'm saying? The Bears are just, oh, God, I wish I could flush them out of my system, but I can't. All right, Mick, uh, it's a blast talking to you uh, always, and uh, carry on the good work at Block Club, all right? Thank you, sir. Always great to join you. Appreciate it. All right, that's great, Mick Dumkey. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 